imagine it. It must have been an awkward conversation. <laughs> Honey, I've met a guy. He's the most amazing guy. I think I'm going to follow him around for a while. <laughs> I mean, he had to tell his wife. He wanted to tell his wife. He loved his wife, but she would have seen him packing his bag and in that little small town, before he got to the edge of the city, uh, Coconut Telegraph would have gone nuts. Everybody would know something was up. And so he just you know, tried to make his case. He said, look, I know it's going to be tough on us, but really, I think that this is really going to be good for us. And I think that, you know, everybody's talking about this. I, I think he's actually, he's the one. I think he's waiting because, see, uh, uh, you know, Andrew and I were just sitting there or standing there. We were throwing our nets out into the sh from the shore, we were trying to catch some little fish after another disastrous night of no fish. And all of a sudden, the guy just shows up. Jesus shows up. And he looks and he says, you two, follow me. And it was like I couldn't help it. But I came home to tell you first, honey, I'd like to follow him. I'd like to be hanging around with him. What do you think? Nervous laughter, hide his face. I don't know. But she probably did what most wives will do when their husbands come home with a crazy cockamamie idea. She said something to the effect, I'm sure. Well, Peter, I get your excitement, but I also remember you were excited about the last rabbi who came to town. So what's the deal with that? Like, well, how, what's different about this? And, and, and really, she wasn't trying to dampen his enthusiasm. She wasn't trying to be rude. She wasn't trying to, you know, take God out of the picture. Any of that, she was just trying to do what most wives do, and that is protect her husband from himself. <laughs> she was just trying to figure out, you know, what, what's, what's the difference this time? She knew what made her husband tick. She also knew her husband was very impetuous and sometimes a hasty fisherman. And, and so she said, really, Peter, you know, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I just want to make sure your feet are firmly planted in reality. And he said, I know. I, was, I knew that's what you were going to say on the way over here. I was thinking that. I was thinking that through. But here's, this is different. He called me. You know that the rabbis never ask anybody. People are begging them to take them, with, uh, take them with them. But not this one. He came to me and invited me. It was different. And it all happened right when Andrew and I, you, you know Andrew, you know my brother is a lot less, uh, uh, you know, fly by the seat of his pants. He's much more, you know, kind of, you know, calm and cautious about things. But he's been following John the baptizer around all this time. And John's been saying, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. So, so John's disciples, like Andrew, they've been looking and keeping their eyes open. And as we're throwing the nets in the water, Andrew's saying to me, Peter, you got to understand, we found the Christ. I mean, he came and he got baptized by John. And all of a sudden, the, God, the sky, he rips open. The voice of God's son says, this is my son. He's got to be the Christ. He's got to be it. So that's why I believe that this has got to be, and why I got to give it a shot, and I won't be gone forever, and it won't be gone right away, because Jesus seems to be making his home here in Capernaum, and, and did she at that point take her hands and put them over his face and calm him down and quiet him down and just say, look, 
all right, you big lug. You go ahead and go, but I want you to come back to me. You hear? Absolutely. And take off. Did she say that? We don't know. I like to think she did. But what we do know is that that day, for Peter and Andrew, James and John, that was the day that started the adventure. That started the adventure for all of us that leads right into the 21st century here, to this adventure. It's the, it's the beginning, that day was the beginning of the day there and back again for, for all of those people who, for whom back again was not the same as it was when they were there before. It, 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 was, it was different. Nothing would be the same ever again. Kind of like our lives when we follow Jesus. And you see, that seems to be Mark's point. Mark is the only one of the, uh, the, the three gospel writers, the first three, and is the only one of, of all four who just makes Jesus kind of show up out of nowhere. He just suddenly shows up. And when he says stuff, stuff immediately happens. And, and, and you begin to get the sense that there's this a sense of authority, the sense of when Jesus is present, that there's this authority to that presence, that there's this power to that presence that people can almost, can, can hardly, can't hardly help following. Because when Jesus says it, he speaks, people obey. Jesus speaks, people obey. And that happens all the way through this gospel. Jesus speaks, demons run away. Jesus speaks, and the, the religious elites who have an answer for everything are silent for a change. Jesus speaks, the, the, the water's uh, calm. Jesus speaks, and, and there's just this sense of everybody stops and listens to what he has to say, and all these people start to follow him. That seems to be the whole point that Mark wants us to understand from the beginning of the gospel. And remember, it's that same Peter that has been talking in Mark's ear to describe what he actually saw and what actually happened. And years later, that same Peter wrote a letter in which he says, we have the gospel made more sure. Jesus says, I'm more present with you now than I, and, and will be into the future than I have been while I've been walking on the planet. Does his presence have that same kind of Jesus speaks, you obey kind of authority for you? Does, it, does that kind of change your life in that way? Well, let me just give you, let me do what Mark does. Let me give you four uh, snippets, four quick reports, bam, 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 uh, um, right here in the first chapter of how this whole thing started. And just four uh, stories that are real quick, just in typical Mark fashion, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 1. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came out of heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I want you to notice, first of all, it says, at that time. The literal translation of that is, it happened in those days. Not, it happened once upon a time. Just be sure you know that. It wasn't once upon a time. In Mark, as I said, in the gospel, Jesus just shows up, just boom. There's no, there's no preliminary, all of a sudden, boom, he's, there he is. And, and, and here he is being baptized by John. But what's kind of you know, head-scratching for us is we look at this and go, well, John's baptism was for, for repentance. But we know now, looking back, Jesus didn't need repentance. He didn't have any sin. 
What was that all about? Well, if you think of it in terms of how we do baptisms, like you've heard, we're going to have some baptisms uh, in a couple of weeks. We, we do it for testimony. We don't do baptism for salvation either. It's a testimony of what God has done and who we are now. And in that kind of scenario, you can see Jesus' baptism makes total sense. It's sort of like inaugurating a new type of baptism, just putting on him what the reality of who he actually was and who he actually is. And what's interesting here is um, you, you see this word being torn apart. The sky is just ripped apart. It's a more violent word. It's, it's a more action word than uh, is used in the other Gospels for what happens when Jesus comes up out of the water. And, and it's important for us to understand uh, why this happens and why God says what he says. There's, there's actually three Old Testament allusions in what God says in the voice. What God says about Jesus and about who he was that points to this power of this presence in him. Look at, look at this. It says, first of all, he says, you are my son. I love this one because that is a quote from Psalm 2-7. And the reason I love Psalm 2-7 is because in verses 1 to 4, it says, why do the nations rage? Why do they get all upset? Why do they freak out? Why do they fight each other? And then it says in verse 4, the king of heaven laughs at them. Just, ha! You, know, you think you're all that. You're not all that. I'm really in charge. That's, that's what, he's ref- what God's voice is referring to. You're my son. You've got all that authority. In fact, it's the very same psalm that is quoted by the, uh, the disciples in, in um, Acts chapter 4 when they're starting to be persecuted and J- uh, John I mean, and uh, Peter are released by the Sanhedrin. They go back to the church, the early believers, and they start praying. I mean, you and I start praying too, but instead of praying what they, you know, I might pray like, get me out of this, get me out of this, please, 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 click my heels together, please. You know, instead of, instead of that, they say, don't get us out of this, God. Just show how powerful you are right here. Give us boldness. Give us courage. And they quote this psalm. You knew all this was going to happen before it happened. That's the kind of authority, that's the kind of power that this is talking about. Secondly, it says that you are my love, my, the one I love, my beloved. That's a reference to, uh, uh, in, in all likelihood, a reference to Genesis chapter 22, where God comes to Abraham and he's going to test his faith. And he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one whom you love, just in case you weren't sure who, which one it was, and I want you to go up in the hill and sacrifice him to me. And he gets up on the hill, and of course you know the story, God rescues him at the last minute. No, I didn't want you to do that. I just wanted to see if you had the love for me to do it, to do what I told you. And that kind of sense of authority, that's exactly what God is saying about Jesus, only in this case, he is sacrificed for us. God's one and only son, right? And then thirdly, He says, with whom I am well pleased. That's a prophecy that was stated uh, something like 725 years before this happened. It was was a prophecy that that Isaiah said the Messiah would be coming, the suffering servant would come, and and I will be pleased with you. And, and, And God is essentially saying, you're that person. You're that one. So in, in a word, all three of these put together, what you really come up with is a word that we don't like very much anymore. It's the word authority. The word authority means that he is legit. He's got the power. 
He can do what God is asking him to do. He can do what he says he will do. He can be who he says he will be. You know, we, we don't really like authority all that much anymore because we think that the authority should be based in the individual. You know, that everybody is their own authority, to which I'm sure if Jesus were here today, he would say, how's that working out for you? Because it's a recipe for chaos. It's not a recipe for freedom. People think that that's freedom, but it's not freedom. It's freedom when someone is higher than I and greater than I. It, 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 Jesus' authority brings peace of mind in that sense. It, it's the kind of, okay, he's greater than I. He's got this. He's got it figured out. And I can kind of lean into that authority. And it gives me all this freedom to operate within that, within his kingdom, within his rule. But you don't really have that if, you know, everybody's their own authority. I mean, it, it, we, want to have, we want to be in charge of everything. We want to be in charge of everything from how we make love to how we make money, from how we, you know, choose our identity to how we choose our morality. We want to be defining sin and what's a mis- just a mistake. When we want to be in charge of all, and I say we in the general sense, but that's, that's how we live. You know, we are the most, if you think about it, of all creation, we are the most resistant species. We are the most rebellion species. And we're always pushing back and pushing back and pushing back. And, and what, what's new today is, is this idea that we can pretend ourselves into reality. When all the evidence says that something's not true, if enough of us, you know, have this sort of corporate, you know, harmonic convergence that we all believe it's true, it'll become true. Boop. Not scientific, not logical, not biblical, but it is new agey, Okay. But more and more people are buying into that, right? And be, why? Because we, uh, I'll, put, I'll, I'll, I'll accept authority from anybody, anything, except for God. And that's just the ultimate conclusion of the race that started way back in Eden. And, and that's what Jesus came to resolve because he saw that it was crushing us and that we will never have peace of mind and heart unless we've got somebody that is behind us who is that kind of authority that says, I've got all this. That's why Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, if he sets you free, as long as you acknowledge he's your authority, he's the ruler, he's everything here, you acknowledge that, you're going to be really free indeed, he says. So that, that, that's sort of Mark's setup because that's exactly how the story plays out. That's exactly how, how, how Jesus uh, sees this uh, coming to be. And, and it, it completely takes away fear. Uh, I'm going to tell you a story of what happened to me, something that happened last week. Um, and I am on the executive board of the denominational family that we're a part of, the Evangelical Covenant Church. And I'm going to tell you something that happened there. Don't tell anybody I told you, okay, because I'm not supposed to tell you what happens there. I just want you to know that I did work last week. Um, from, from 8 to 10, I was on this board sitting there making harumphing decisions. So... Um, but, but I'm also the chairman of a committee off of that board uh, that meets whenever we meet, uh, and that is called Start and Strengthen Churches, okay? And that means the, the board or the, the committee that, that helps um, support the starting of new churches and the strengthening of existing churches and, uh, you know, other places may call this church growth or something like that. But anyway, 
So I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to report at the general board at the end of the meeting what our committee talked about. Well, we're in the middle of our committee meeting, and uh, it comes up that in the, in the last couple of years, there's been this goal for our denominational family, and that is to plant 500 churches in the next 10 years. And that's a really great goal. I mean, it's an awesome goal because what statistics prove thoroughly is that more people come to Christ through new churches than from any other form of evangelism, quite frankly even more than crusade evangelism, which is nothing wrong with that, but more than anything else, it's people who, uh, it's churches starting churches that makes this happen. So it's a noble goal. But uh, I have a new friend, he's a pastor from California, his name's Brian. As we start talking about this, he's working on his computer and typing stuff and calculating stuff. And, and I'm going, man, what, what's he up to? And then finally he says, hey, I got something to say about this. I said, oh, go for it. He says, you know what, if, if, if you take the attrition rate, because there's an attrition rate of churches, churches have a life cycle like everything else, uh, like businesses, like people, you know, so there's, there's a, 3% of them or so close every year, not just our denomination, but nationally. So if you factor that in, and you factor that over 10 years, and you factor in the fact that we're going to be planting uh, 500 new churches, what you need to understand is, is when we get to the end of that 10 years, 50% of our denomination, our, our ch- denominational family, the Covenant Church, 50% will be brand new. They won't know how we do things around here. They won't know. You know, they might not even look like us. You know, I mean, think about that. But just take, let's bring it right down to here, to local. What if God says now's the time? I mean, it looks like he wants us to grow and to accept news and reach new people. And next week, somebody might sit in your seat Anyway, these guys said, you need to tell the board that. You need to say, that's something we got to pray about. And so I did. I left it. I was the last one to speak, uh, interestingly enough. And I said, look, I got an assignment for you before we meet in March. Let's start praying all the time regularly. You know, God, show us and give us the heart to accept and reach out to these new people that you're going to bring to us. Because we don't want to get anything in us that get in the way that you have to do it the way we've always done it before. Right? You see, what, what the authority of Jesus does is it takes, you know, as long as we're doing what he says to do and we're following him, it gives us all this freedom from fear that, you know, I don't need to fear the next election. Because why? Because his kingdom's more powerful than any earthly kingdom. I don't need to fear the next diagnosis from the doctor. I don't need to fear uh, what's going to happen when I go to, to work tomorrow. I don't need to fear what's going to happen with uh, that, you know, when, when life gets dry or difficult at a certain point. I don't need to fear any of that. That's, that's why, the reason I'm going on about this is because that's why how powerful and important and life-changing accepting and understanding the true authority of Jesus is on this planet and in your life and in my life. And in this church. And, 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 you know, Mark takes it even a step further. He takes it, he makes it personal. Look at verse 12. It's the next thing that happens, granted, but Jesus is making it personal for us. Here's how. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. You see Mark's style, just a couple of sentences, bam, bam. Uh, whereas Luke and, and, and Matthew tell us in detail what happened out there, but he's being tempted by Satan. He's being, uh, you know, set up for something. What, what's interesting is, first of all, it says here that he was sent out. That, that word actually is the word cast out. He was being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness or the desert. 
And you say, well, what's, what's with that? Well, what's interesting is, is that word's used for casting out demons. Now, please understand me. We're not saying Jesus was a demon. What we're saying is, is that that's the kind of push. Did Jesus know what was coming in the wilderness? He probably did. Was he looking forward to it? He probably wasn't. And yet the Spirit pushed him and pushed him and, 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 and said, this, see, this is where it gets personal. Because have you ever been in a situation where God led you somewhere or asked you to do something that you didn't really want to do? If you're a Christian, the answer should be yes. You see, if someone told you before, um, you know, you became a Christian, that if you just give your life to Christ, life will be easier, flowers will bloom wherever you step, it'll just be easy. That's not true. Doesn't mean it's worse. But it does mean that God has, has got this. He's, he's got authority. He's got power. And he's present with you and me in a way that lifts up us beyond all of those kinds of things. You see, what, what Jesus had to do is he had to be establishing his authority as the authority over the devil, over the, the worldly culture of this world, and over us, in our souls, and our what the Bible calls the flesh, or our, our physical world, that, that's right too, but our, the whole person of who we are, that's what the flesh is. He had to have, be established as that authority. You see, because Jesus' authority over the world, the flesh, and the devil means he knows what it's like to be you know, pushed into those places in those moments, into that job that you feel persecuted. I don't want to go again today, but Jesus, you've got me through before. I bet you're going to, what are you going to do today? Or that, that school that's, that's intimidating or, or, you know, reading your Bible in a place you know that there's going to be a bully that's going to give you a hard time for it. Or, you know, you, you, you know that you're going to get caught by the thought police for what you believe because you go to that certain party or whatever else. But you feel the Spirit drawing you to do that. You sense Jesus drawing you. Why? Because he's got the power and he can take care of it. As Danae says, his burden is light. That doesn't mean because we're all yippy-skippy going into the tough stuff, but what it means is, it means that he's got the power and the authority to make it all work just the way he wants it to work and to keep you well and to keep you his and to keep you safe in the midst of it. That is, I think, why Jesus got sent to the desert. He knows. He knows what that's like. And then when he comes out of the desert, he explains exactly all of that. You know, after he's been taken to a place, like we are taken to places, where we don't really want to go and we don't even really understand God's purpose for it yet, he comes out and he's discovered the purpose. Look at this, verse 14. After John was put in prison, that is John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, here's, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is the good news. Okay, the, the kingdom of God is what he's proclaiming. And, um, you know, that's a little different than what we're used to hearing the gospel described as, right? And, and, and uh, most uh, Bible scholars will agree today that the central part of Jesus' message is the kingdom of God has come to earth. 
That's what it's saying. The rule of God, the authority of God has come to earth. And, and you go, well, yeah, but what about the salvation part? And, that, you know, that's part of it, certainly. But here's the thing. If you don't understand the idea of the kingdom, you won't understand the teaching. You won't understand the miracles. You won't understand the mission. You won't understand the salvation. You won't understand the presence of Jesus in our, world, in our lives. You won't understand. And I understand it's hard to get today because we don't do kings and queens anymore, at least not in this country. We don't. So let me give one more run at trying to describe what this means that the kingdom of God has come and why that's good news. Look at this. It says, uh, first of all, three things. The human history is not an endless cycle of sin, suffering, and death. It's not just one darn thing after another. It's not just cyclical. It's linear. It's going somewhere. It's moving in a direction. It's headed somewhere good. God's got a goal. There's a purpose for your life. There's a purpose for this life. There's a purpose for this world. He's got it figured out, and he's got the power to pull it off. Number two, the kingdom is present not because the king's authority is universally acknowledged. Well, that's a relief because it's not universally acknowledged, not by a long shot. There are a lot of people who don't acknowledge it, but what this is saying is, is the kingdom of God is true. What Jesus is saying, it's true, whether you believe it or not, whether, whether a critical mass of people believe it or not, whether, whether so many people believe it or not, this isn't a statistical poll. You know, there are a lot of people who uh, are not ready to bow the knee to Jesus as the king, but they will be. That's the point. It's going somewhere. Thirdly, the kingdom is present because the relationship with him is now possible. And this is the part that gets personal for us. A whole bunch of us submit to God's reign already. We already do. We're, the, we're in a sense, one of the greatest indicators, one of the greatest pieces of evidence here in 20, uh, 20 what are we now? 2019. I've been working on the calendar for next year. But the the reality is, is, that, is that we're evidence of, of that power and that wonder and that, that strength here of Jesus on earth. I mean, that, that's, a, that's an amazing thing when you think about it. But, but he says the, that, you know, all authority is, in other places, all authority has been given to me and that basically the kingdom of God, that's the authority of the kingdom of God has been given to me. Now, the way you get in there is you repent and believe this good news, that this proclamation that has been taking place. And you believe in me, not just a proclamation, but in a person, in me. You see, Jesus' authority means that his kingdom is more real than other kingdoms, any other kingdom in this world. So really, we do not have to fear what is coming next. We do not have to concern ourselves with that. You see, one of the things about this claim that Jesus is the only true uh, king and the, uh, he's the ultimate authority in this world is that that puts the Christian message and to some degree from time to time Christians in the target, don't, doesn't it? It's starting to happen again in our culture. It's happened again and again for the last 2,000 years over different generations. But this exclusivity that Jesus is the only one that's got the true authority, that he's the only one that's got the power, that has put us in the cultural bullseye. That's not fair. That's not, can't be right. You know, what if I want to do, does that mean I'm left out? Well, you could check out what Jesus says. I mean, it, it, it happens a time and again. But what Jesus is saying here is, I am, I am king over not just my kingdom, I'm a king over the whole world. The kingdom of God is over the whole world. 
So my jurisdiction and my presence is bigger and more powerful and greater and yet more loving and benevolent, thank God, because we are not very benevolent creatures, and I don't know too many governments that are. His government is ultimately benevolent and loving and yet powerful to do everything he says it's going to do. And that's just like you can lean back into that and go, ah, no matter what comes. Let me give you one big hairy example of that. The what was going on for Christians when Mark wrote Mark. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago, he wrote it in probably the mid-60s AD. Well, that's right in the neighborhood of when a guy named Nero Caesar came to the throne in Rome. And Mark was writing in Rome in all likelihood. And this might, you know, some people believe that that's why he wrote this gospel. He had to get it down because of the incredible persecution. Nero was the first one to do these horrible things to Christians, you know, crucify them, burn them alive at night to light the streets, uh, uh, put animal skins on them, let them, dogs and other things, tear them apart, wild animals. He was the first one to come up with these horrendous ideas and, and to actually do them. And one thing that happened during that time is, is Nero um, was... Uh, was starting to feel like he, you know, people weren't respecting him, they weren't loving him, and he wanted to be loved. So uh, we don't know this for sure, but there was a fire that swept through Rome, and it was devastating. It swept through all, you know, particularly the poor parts of Rome that were built out of wood. And, and so it swept through, and, and Nero uh, may have started it. A lot of people still to this day think he did. But what he did then is he, he blamed it on the Christians and the Jews and, and you know, this, these tiny little sects of religious people in the city. And so he would say, I'm going to protect you all from these horrible, mean people. The reason we know that this is how it went down is because uh, there's this, this, um, this Roman historian named Tacitus who uh, describes how this happened and that these people were persecuted, these Christians, but he, at the end, he tells us a little bit about a particularly pernicious lie. Because people went along with this in that culture, not because they believed Nero. They, they still figured he was a nut job. But they went along for a different lie. Watch this. Christus, which is, he, he didn't know how to say Christ or Jesus or anything, so that's what he did. From whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, he's talking about the crucifixion, right? And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, <clears throat> the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so, here's the lie, not so much of the crime of firing the city, for burning the city, as for the hatred of all mankind. You got to kill them because they hate all mankind. Now we're just starting to see that. I mean, we're not anywhere near this. We're starting to see that show up in the cultural news media and stuff like that, right? Some people say, it's religion, especially Christians, they're the problem with the world. We've got to stop them, that kind of stuff. But, right, because it's the hatred of all mankind. But think about this. These people were able to live above and beyond that. Why? Because they knew that they were following a higher authority, the higher presence, a more real presence than anything anybody else understood. 
they were able to do. So think about this. Next time you have a problem with one of Jesus' commands, the one that says love your enemies, which I have had a problem with from time to time. Next time you have a problem with that, think about these people. How would they have to do it? It reminds me of what G.K. Chesterton said. He wrote in a letter, I think, to somebody. He said, you know, the Bible tells us <clears throat> to love our neighbors and to love our enemies because most of the time they're the same people. <laughs> the closest ones in, right? And so you know, next time just think about, well, if Jesus can get us over that kind, and here we are. And in Rome, the, the number one symbol, more, more symbol of any other thing else in Rome today, any other symbol is the cross, right? Because that's the... the the center of one of the particular major denominations. The cross, not just any cross, one cross. Christ, is, it, it completely changed, it just, it, it changes everything and you begin to see the evidences of the kingdom all around us and in our lives. And, and that's why Mark goes on, and, and, and this is really a stroke of genius here, I think. I mean, besides the fact that it actually happened uh, right after these, these things happened. But he goes in and tells how it happened that the first disciples were called and what happened for them as, as if it's a, as a prototype, as if it's a template for you and I to understand when, when we sense Jesus' presence, what's the appropriate response? Watch this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. And when they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in the boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and left, they left their father, and he called them, uh, he called them and left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is sort of a brash, bold statement for a rabbi to make, by the way. Because people came and begged the rabbis to let them follow him. People used to come and, you know, family say, please take my son, please take my son, get him out of the house and provide for him. But in Jesus' case, he makes this bold statement. He says, nope, I pick you, I pick you, I pick you. And look at the people he picked. Some of us might have gotten picked. I mean, if they got picked. I think about it. It's, 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 it's phenomenal. He's a you know, hardened old fisherman, you know, trying to figure out stuff. But I want to show you something. This, this is the inside circle. This is the inner circle. Did you know Jesus had an inner circle? Well, is that fair? I don't know. I don't think Jesus was worried about that. I don't think Jesus was so worried about every single person's feelings that he should let those feelings rule the universe. I don't think he was looking to put people down. This wasn't a put down. But these four, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, especially Peter, James, and John, but Andrew shows up in there from time to time, were sort of his inner circle. He took them with him to, you know, the, the significant moments like, you know, up in the Mount of Transfiguration, things like this, okay? So it, it doesn't mean he, he dissed any of the other ones. It just means that these were his inner circle of confidence, and they were the first ones he picked. And, and what I want you to see here is, like we said, from this inner circle... A guy named Peter is the one that's speaking into Mark's story. He's the one that Mark had heard from. He's the one that gives an eyewitness account. And you see, to understand, you and I won't get this, 
something that the first century people would have gotten because we, we get all our information from television, from newsreels, from movies, from, you know, phot- photography, you know, that's just this and so. We get all that. They didn't have any of that, right? But there's still a visual in the book of Mark. There's a thing called an inclusio. Well, what's that? Well, it means uh, that there's something at the beginning and at the end. And what it, what, what's at the beginning and the end is this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 16, we just read it. Simon, who we later know becomes Peter, because Mark uses his name Simon, 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 and then Simon, Peter, and then Peter, right? After Jesus renames him Peter, and we'll get to that. But Simon is in Galilee. We just saw that in verse 14. And Jesus comes by and says, follow me. In, in in chapter 16, at the end of Mark, in verse 7, the, the women have just shown up at the empty tomb. As I said, ladies, you've discovered it first. They're staying there, and an angel shows up. They're trying to figure out what happened. And the angel says, don't worry. Go tell Peter to go to Galilee, and Jesus will meet him there. And Paul, the apostle, in 1 Corinthians 15, affirms that Paul was the first one to see Jesus. So what you have here is a visual for these people who didn't have TV and all that, that that at the beginning and at the very end of the story, you have somebody who was there for the whole thing. And he's saying, that's the person I'm reporting on. That's the person who told me this. He saw everything. He was a part of the inner circle and everything. Why is that a big deal to you and me? Here's why it's a big deal. Because Jesus' authority was witnessed. It was seen. And so we can base our lives and faith on evidence, not just theoretical mush. You know what I mean by theoretical mush? I mean, caffeine's bad for you. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. I mean, vitamin D is bad for you. No, it is. Yes, it's not. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, back and forth, and cultures go through these big sweeps and sways. Now, you don't have to base it on theoretical mush. Jesus either had the authority or he didn't. This actually happened or it didn't. Jesus happened or he didn't. That's what this is confronting us with. And the reason that's so important is two last things I need to tell you. Two reminders that we see here. The first one has to do with the words, follow me. Follow me. Come follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, here's the, here's the thing. We need to kind of understand. Jesus knew what it meant because he knew his, his Bible, the Old Testament. The disciples maybe didn't have a Bible in their house because they were hard to come by, but they knew the stories. They knew the law, especially the first five books. They'd been taught it since they were little kids. They'd been taught what God had said over and over and over again, because that's what God said to do. And in some cases, by the way, that's more accurate than having it written down. Because if you're telling the story of what God did in, in your little village and in your little town, some little kid that has heard it a thousand times is going to say, if you make a mistake, it's going to go, that didn't happen, it happened this way, you know? I mean, you're going to, it's, it's, you know, when you have more people around it, it it's more accurate to pass it on. So, it, but the point is, is they knew. They knew what it meant to follow God. Because it's back there in the beginning pages of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the back in the beginning of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they called the Bible. For example, let me give you one passage that describes what it means to give your all, give your life to follow God. Here it is. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 14. It says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. He's talking about 
the tenth, okay? The tithe. I know. A lot of people think the church just wants your money. God just wants some of your money. But that's not what it is. He wants a lot more than that. Watch this. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, olive oil, and firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord. So we go, okay, good. We get to still eat it. Your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. Oh, it's where we eat it and how we eat it. That's right. So that you may learn, this is why he asked this in, his, in our followership, that we may learn to revere the Lord, your God. That's why it is. Oh, so you're trying to get me outside myself, God. That's right. You're trying to get me out beyond the, the, person, uh, uh, the prison of being focused on myself all the time. That's right. So how do we do that? You give everything you have, all your family, every relationship, your entire life, you give it to me. Oh, I still let you live it, but I want you to give to me. I want it all. And so it's not a matter of, you know, a little of this and none of that, or some of that. It's, it's a matter of all. And so I'm either revering him for who he is, the authority over everything, who is the only hope that I can have hope and I can have freedom and I can have the life that I was meant to have. If he's the only hope and I give him that all or I don't. And if I don't, I don't revere him. That's why he does it. And that's why these guys, this is the next thing I need to tell you, these guys stop what they're doing. They leave their livelihood, which is their nets and their boats, and just start following Jesus. Mark makes it clear. Let me, let me show you this. In the, in the last verse that we just read, let's read it in a different translation. It's verse 20 of Mark chapter 1. Immediately he called them, and they left their, their father Zebedee. And he's talking about John and, and uh, James here, but Peter and Andrew do the same thing a couple verses earlier in the boat and hired, with hired servants, so they, their dad wasn't you know, abandoned, and went away to follow him. So, what does that mean? Well, I want you to see that word immediately. That's why I put it in this translation. You don't have to remember this. Don't have to write it down because I'm going to remind you because Mark does. 42 times he says immediately, immediately. We've already seen this word. It's translated differently in the NIV, but we've seen immediately four times already, twice in these last verses we read. What does that mean? It means that there wasn't a bunch of lollygagging. Come follow me. Well, I'm not sure. Could you do a miracle first? There wasn't any of that. It was just immediate, follow me. Okay. Because there was something about his presence, and again, that presence is supposed to be more powerful for us than it was for them, that just said, you know what? I don't care what you tell me to do. I'm following you. I'm all in. That is what immediately means. That kind of, I will follow you no matter what is, because I know I, I, I'm, I'm falling more and more for you every day. That's what this is. That's what the authority is. It's not just, you know, some, the next thing, the next, you know, big dog in town. It's, it's not that. You see, you, you look at that and you think about all the, um, the people that, you know, the things you hear people saying, you hear people saying about Jesus, Right? I like Jesus uh, because he feel, makes me feel good. Which, you know, I hope he doesn't make you feel bad, but 
I think that makes him sad. Because it's sort of like, Jesus must be going great, so I'm like a couple of Tylenol. What's that? Right? That's not it. But he's got us in the palm of his hands. If we give ourselves all to him, man, I want him to have all of me. As we see Peter in John 13, then, you know, take me all. That's what we want to see happen, don't you? I do. I want that with all my life, all my, my family of believers, my family of family. And I, want it all, I want him to have it all because I know in the, his hands is the only way things will flourish and thrive and it's the only way to live. I'm going to call the band out here and just give you one challenge. What does this mean for us? I think it means this. This is a place to start. If you don't already do it, I would encourage you sometime early in the day for the next week, do it for the next 40 days or 30 days because they say it becomes a habit after that. Whether it's before you get out of bed or what, just as you're waking up, just remind uh, or just tell God he's your king. Tell Jesus he's your king. He's the one you want to follow with your whole life. Just tell him that and remind yourself that you've made that commitment by just doing that every morning. Remind him that you know that he isn't just your savior, he's your Lord. He's not just uh, your buddy, he's your loving friend beyond any other loving friend you could ever have. He's the one that knows what's coming, he's the one who will keep you together, so therefore he is your king and you are his servant and there's no better place to be than to be that servant of him. Let's pray that together as we do this. Let's pray that together this week, okay? Let me, let me pray it with you right now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus with all the presence and the authority that goes with being the king of the kingdom, the kingdom that has been reclaimed by you in this world that's gone so many crazy directions. You are our Lord and our Savior. You are our deepest, most loving, caring friend who loves us too much to let us just go off and do stuff by ourselves that, of which you're, we don't want you to have any part. You are our King, and we have the privilege and the opportunity and the wondrous possibility of being in relationship with you and in love with you as a servant would who really, really loves their master and wouldn't want to be anywhere else. May you make us that kind of church, that kind of people. Would you help us be that kind of person for each other and help people along on that journey because it really is an adventure. Thank you for being here. Thank you for telling us about it. Thank you for inviting us to come and follow you. We love you, Jesus. That's why we pray in your name. Amen.